0: Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today we're going to finish our message series on walking in forgiveness. This concept of walking in forgiveness is um, its kind of a mixture of a couple different ideas from the Word of God. One of them we're gonna cover in 1 John today. John talks about this idea of walking in the light. So there's this concept of as a Christian, you're gonna be living your life and walking um, in the light of God. But there's this, also this idea that when Christ forgave you of sin and washed you of your iniquity, that wasn't the end process, that there's this ongoing transformation in your heart, that while you are now simultaneously declared not guilty, you are still committing some of the sins of your old bad habits and your old flesh. So we're gonna walk through the reconciliation of that kind of stuff and those concepts today. Um, But before we get the cart in front of the horse, as we're finishing our message series today, and we've covered a lot of aspects of forgiveness, I kind of want to end where we started. So we started with Jesus on the cross. That was where our first message series kicked off and how Jesus on the cross showed us what forgiveness looked like because he was forgiving people as they were murdering him. So we're going to end with Jesus. So we started with Jesus on the cross, and we're going to end today with Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount where he teaches us how to pray. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter six, and we're gonna read verses nine through 15. And what this is, is Jesus teaching his disciples, which would be us, how to pray. So Matthew six, nine says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now just pause right there for a second. These words are not a script that you're supposed to read when you pray. This is a list of bullet points that you should be addressing often when you pray. So as you're praying, you should be positioning yourself that you see God in heaven as a father. That's who you're talking to. You should also be addressing him in a way that is holy, viewing him as completely separate and other than anything else. He's not like anything else in your life. He's not like a dad that you can go to and manipulate to get the car keys so that you can go out on Friday night. He's not the kind of guy who you can do some things for, so he'll do some things for you. He's holy, he's other, he's different, he's separated. And what we're praying for is for his will to be done. We want his way of doing things to take place in our life. And what that means essentially is that we want things on earth to look like what it looks like in heaven. That's what we're praying for. We're praying for our world to look more like his world. But then he continues in verse 11. He says, this is something else you should pray for. You should pray, give us this day our daily bread, So, where does your provision come from? Not your job, your employer. It comes from heaven. He provides the opportunities, and that's how we should see things, and that's how we should pray. Give us this day our daily bread. But immediately following that, and forgive us our debts. That's interesting. So on a regular basis, we should be asking for forgiveness of the things we are trespassing in, even though we are still declared not guilty. As we have also have forgiven our debtors. So it's a two-edged sword. We're supposed to be asking for forgiveness regularly. And we're also supposed to be forgiving others in the same way that we have been forgiven lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to throw in 14 and 15 because I think it's helpful. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now what he's not saying is there an either or. You're not getting into heaven unless you forgive people. What he's saying is you can't choose to walk in a posture of forgiveness and accept God's forgiveness over your sin, but not extend it to other people. If you're not extending forgiveness, there's a good possibility that you're lying to yourself about the forgiveness you got from God. That's what he's saying. But I find it interesting that he throws in two extra sentences about forgiveness after he teaches us how to pray. Hey, here's some things about prayer, but just want to remind you, just want to put a a little bold emphasis on this. Forgiveness is something you should be thinking about and walking in every single day. Now let's go back up to how he talks about daily bread and forgiveness. So he's teaching us how to pray, and one of the things that he teaches us is that daily forgiveness is as much needed as daily bread. We need forgiveness daily bread and we need forgiveness. And he pairs those together in a way where in the Greek, it reads almost like you need daily forgiveness as much as you need daily food. You need to keep your relationship with the father as clean as possible, as much as you need to make plans for lunch and dinner. You know how you make plan? Well, you go to the grocery store and you make plans for like what the dinner is going to look like? For- Our- My house is weird. My wife makes dinner plans for like the whole month. She'll go at the beginning of the month and we'll plan dinner out for a month. If you're going to make that much planning when it comes to food, how much planning, how much awareness do you have when it comes to trespasses you have against your father? God says that we should pray in a way where we are as aware of things that break relationship as much as we are about things that we put inside of our mouth. So he's teaching us that we need daily forgiveness, but that kind of doesn't jive with this idea that we have already been forgiven. And that's where a lot of us get tripped up. Well, I've already been forgiven. Why do I need to be forgiven again? Why do I need to repent? I already repented. I'm saved, remember? Well, what he's teaching here is this idea that even though you've been declared not guilty, followers of Jesus still disobey God. We have things that God tells us we're supposed to do, and we must obey, but we rack up debt against Him because we disobey Him. Let me show you what that looks like in the Bible. Go to First John chapter one verses five through 10. First John 1, 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. So John is saying this is not something new that we got from heaven. This is what Jesus told us. And this is what we're telling you. Because John was one of the disciples. He heard it from Jesus' mouth that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. For if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. But the blood of Jesus, His son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John is showing us from these verses that salvation is just the beginning. And after initial forgiveness, that initial not guilty verdict, we are still tempted. We still try to indulge the flesh. And that's why we need this concept of daily forgiveness, which is why Jesus told his disciples, hey, this is how you pray all the time. You're consciously aware that you are on a regular basis, transgressing things against the Lord. How do you transform? You become more aware of how dark your heart actually is. You don't continue to live your life as a newborn Christian thinking, all right, I'm good, I'm cool. The rest of the world needs to dig in on what I've discovered because now I'm fine and all the problems exist outside of me. Now, that is just the first step of you starting to mine the depths of how broken you actually are. of how much disgusting sin has entangled the inside of who you are and affects the decisions that you make on a daily basis, individually, with your family. John says that this is, The salvation moment is just the beginning, and so you should confess your sins on a regular basis. This is the reason why when Jesus is talking with Peter about washing feet, and he says, "Um, uh, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. There's no way. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And Peter responds, well, then don't wash my feet. Wash my whole body. And Jesus responds, there's no need for me to wash your whole body. You only need your feet washed. Jesus is teaching this concept that once you get clean completely, you can still walk out into the world and get dirt on your feet and need continual cleansing. This is also the concept that you see um, after the Passover. After the people of Israel got freed in the Passover... And they were set free from Egypt. The Passover wasn't just one day celebration festival. It continued for a whole nother week. Um, It was this festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the purpose was, hey, you're now saved, but saved for what? Saved to live righteously to God. So now after this moment of transformation and salvation, spend the rest of your life digging up the stuff that contradict that original salvation moment you experienced. Continually try and rehash or surface or get to the bottom of this stuff that keeps you at odds with God. So the question we have today before us is kind of piggybacking off of what we talked about last week. So last week we wrestled with this concept of grief, godly grief versus worldly grief. And we talked about worldly grief comes from the enemy and all it does is drive us towards depression and sorrow and away from God. But godly grief comes with conviction from the Holy Spirit. It convicts us of sin, it drives us to God in repentance so that we can be restored and fixed and our, our relationship with God can cultivate and grow. So the question is, if that's the direction that all of us need to be thinking in, so we've walked through this concept of like, okay, forgiveness uh, it, with, with regards to um, somebody who's done something against me, now I know what to do. Uh, forgiveness when I am the offender and I've done something against someone else, now I know what to do. What happens, or, or how do we work through the ultimate offense where every sin that you commit, the person that you're offending is God? How do you reconcile, how do you walk in this forgiveness? He's offering when all of the sin that you commit is against his kingdom and what he asks you to obey. What are we repenting of? When the Holy Spirit convicts us, what can we expect he's going to convict us of? What is the Holy Spirit going to expose? If I'm going to pray like Jesus says to daily walk in forgiveness, if I'm going to follow what John says of walking in the light, what am I asking daily forgiveness for? What am I repenting of? That's where we're going. So to start us off today, go to Psalm 32. James has given me the eye because he's like, I read that. I already read this one. Do we have to get this one again? We read this during worship. Psalm 32, this is a psalm of David. This is his reaction and his uh, perspective after committing probably one of the most disgusting sins that we see an awesome dude in the Bible commit. Let's read what he says about it. Psalm 32, verse three, we'll pick it up there. It says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I will confess my specific transgressions, the sins that I committed. And then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now you see in your Bible that word selah, that is like a a Hebrew word that, tells the reader of this psalm to pause and calmly reflect on what you just read. Now, we're not going to pause and calmly reflect. I'm going to keep reading. But that's a habit you should get into as you're reading the Word of God. After something hits you like a Mack truck, spiritually, you should pause and calmly reflect on what it means for you. So go to verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That's interesting. So he goes from telling us what he did to then starting to teach us that this is something we should all do. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So what is David confessing? David is confessing his sin that he had with Bathsheba. He had an affair and then he orchestrated a situation where this woman's husband would be killed so he could be with this woman. Pretty disgusting stuff. Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him with this. This is kind of like the Holy Spirit confronting us. And David repents and his relationship is restored, but he doesn't stop there with a restored relationship. He goes a step further. He makes it his personal mission to teach others about repentance. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting to me because this issue seems to be an individual issue. This is David's issue. David committed the sin. David needed to get right before the Lord. David got right before the Lord, and that should be the end of the story. But it's not because David took what he learned, and he made a decision to start teaching everybody about God's forgiveness. He took this individual issue, and he made it a corporate issue. Why did he do that? Why did David take his personal thing and make it a, a corporate issue that he then taught about in Israel? Because from David's perspective, he didn't want his heart to be the only heart in Israel that was repentant. He wanted the entire culture of Israel to walk in repentance. He wanted what he learned to be reproduced in the lives of everyone around him. Now, why is that important? Because when culture values repentance, sin no longer rules. As long as you're living your life ignorant of things that need to be addressed, the culture as a whole is in bondage. But the more that you allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate the things in your heart that need to be softened and changed and molded to look more like heaven so that it can actually live here on earth, as that stuff starts taking place, the culture, which starts in your heart but eventually lives in the hearts of all the people, starts saying to sin, "Mm -mm, you can't rule here because something else is ruling here. You follow? So David takes his own individual sin and says, this is a thing that we all need to do. And he stands up and he says, as the leader, I'm going to lead the charge. I am the worst among you, and I'm going to show you what I'm going to do about it. Paul does something similar in the New Testament when he calls himself the chief of sinners. I don't know how he could do that. Like the dude that, that planted all, most of all the churches that in some way had some effect on every single person in this room being a believer. All of you primarily, uh, in some form or fashion, are a Christian today because of churches that Paul planted early in the New Testament. That gospel message spread out to other parts of the world and eventually affected where you are and it's why you believe what you believe. So I don't know how a dude like that who writes two-thirds of the New Testament plants all those churches can say, I'm the chief of sinners, but apparently he had a lock on something that most of us pretend it doesn't exist. That the closer you get to God, the more junk is exposed and the less worthy you feel of anything. This is what Moses was like. If you read the Old Testament, Moses gets so frustrated with the people. And they're like, oh, we're so tired of wandering around the desert. There's no food. and There's no water. And we're hungry. It was better back in Egypt. I liked being a slave more than I like being free. And Moses loses his mind. He takes his staff and he strikes a rock and water flows out of it. And God says, congratulations, Moses. You just forfeited your ability to walk into the promised land. Land. Whoa, whoa, what? Because of hitting a rock? You mean he disqualified himself because he hit a rock? You heard what the people were saying, right? You heard how bad they were complaining. He disqualified himself because the closer you get to God, the more aware of your own junk you are, and the less you can play around with stuff like sin. And the further you stand from the stuff and you pretend this doesn't exist, you shelter yourself and, you, t- and you, you provide for yourself this false sense of, of holiness. But it's not real because the real holiness comes by getting closer to God and realizing how weak you actually are. Which is why Paul also says that the weaker you become, the stronger Christ is in your life. You become more aware of how great he is when you realize how small you actually are. That's why it's so important to to regularly like do things like Google the the Earth and like look at a picture of the Earth, because when you start staring at that little blue marble, all of a sudden your issues start shrinking. Do you, do you follow? When you start understanding how broken you are and how holy He is, you get off of your soapbox that you've been standing on shouting from about how things need to be your way. So what David does is he teaches us that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, he convicts us of personal sin right? That's one of the things that David shows us. Personal sin is an area that you can expect the Holy Spirit to expose you on. So when we started this, we said, what is the Holy Spirit going to expose us? Uh, He's going to expose personal sin, sins that absolutely you committed. But if we follow David's logic, it doesn't stop with personal sin. If we follow David's logic, personal sin always affects the culture. So there's something else that the Holy Spirit will probably reveal in your life, and that is cultural sin, now, let me show you what I mean. Go to Joshua chapter 7. All right, this story is a story about when Israel goes into the promised land, and when there's, as they're moving into the promised land... Um, God tells Israel that one of their responsibilities is to be a a hand of judgment on the people who are disobeying God in the land. They're supposed to drive them out. They're supposed to execute judgment on them, but they're not there to plunder. They're not there to um, steal all of the resources from the people. They're not an invading force. They're a sword in the hand of God to execute judgment. So there are strict instructions when you come into this city, don't plunder it. Execute judgment, and that's the end of it. So in uh, Joshua chapter 7, let's pick up in verse 10. So they go in, and they they do what God says, uh, except for one dude who doesn't listen. It's always one dude, right? Chapter 7, verse 10, it says, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So God told Israel to conquer this city and not plunder it, and everybody listened except this one dude named Achan. Achan thought it was cool to slip a little bit of the silver that he found in this city that they conquered, to steal it, put it in his pocket, and go bury it under his tent. And he thought nobody would know. Well, God knew. He told Joshua to go deal with the situation. The situation was that Achan broke God's law and Joshua was responsible for the punishment. So Joshua comes to Achan and to the family. They find the silver under Achan's tent. And what does Israel do? They stone Achan to death, but they don't stop there. They kill his family as well. Now, that seems odd. It seems unfair. Achan was the one who stole. He was guilty, but his family was also judged. So the question we have now is, why was Achan and his family judged if Achan was the only one who committed the sin? Because Achan's disobedience didn't stop with him taking the silver. Achan's disobedience continued in setting the culture in his family that, hey, what we do is steal. Do you follow? When the father says, I'm going to do this, it doesn't just stop with the father. He's teaching his children that in this family, this is what we do this is normal for us. We don't have to listen to Moses. We can do whatever we want. This is what David was talking about. This is why David was repenting, because Achan's actions established a culture that was against God's ways. His act was not just the act itself, it started creating inside of his family and his culture a way of thinking, a way of acting, a new normal that was contrary to God's. David saw this in his own life, that if, hey, if the king can steal somebody's wife, then anybody can steal somebody's wife. That's the logic. If at the top we say this is okay, then it's okay for everyone underneath it. God says that's not okay. What this does is it establishes a culture contrary to the culture God is trying to establish, and it establishes this idea of cultural sin. Everyone is a product in the world of their own personal choices. You can't get away from that. You are accountable for your own choices, but everybody's choices come from the fact that they are a part of a community. Every choice you make came from from being taught something from somewhere, whether it was your family or your parents or the community you're a part of or the culture that you're a part of. And that's good or bad. Being a part of Red Hills Church community means that we are all collectively saying this thing right here trumps anything that you think. This is most important, not what I think or what I feel or what I've experienced, but you're learning that in the context of a community. And while this message goes forth, you're going to dissect that in small groups and in your lunches and your relationships with people outside. So what we're talking about as a community has an impact on you and your individual family, and it goes up the chain as well. Whatever you decide within your family affects the people outside of your family, because whatever junk you allow inside your home is eventually going to come out in the church and affect the community. It runs both ways. David knew it and Joshua knew it, and that's why Achan's family was punished. Because we have a way of establishing a culture of sin when we individually say, this is okay. So I want you to think for a minute. Think about your family, your, your personal family, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles. Where did you learn about anger? Did you learn about anger from watching your father problem solve? Where did you learn about stewardship, about giving, about managing money? What you choose to do with your money right now as an adult, is it because you watch your parents do some smart stuff or you watch your parents not do some smart stuff? Do you see how the culture you grew up in can affect how you positively or negatively make decisions today? I want you to think about your culture. Where did you learn about race? Where, who taught you how to think about people of different colors? Now here in America, the black-white issue is very prominent because of our history of slavery, because of all the things that are happening in our country right now. But I'm talking not just in America, let's think globally. What do you think about Jewish people? What do you think about Indian people? What do you think about Middle Eastern people? What is the first thought that goes through your mind when you walk through a Publix and you see someone come down the aisle wearing a full head wrap? And who taught you that? Where did that come from? Because babies aren't born with that. They're taught that. I want you to think for a minute about um, gender. Who taught you to think the way you think about gender? Think for a moment about your community. What sin is okay in your community because everyone does it? It's not a big deal. We don't even talk about it because everybody does it. Are you starting to see how community and culture and family have an impact on the way that we think about sin and the way we talk about and the way we deal with it? Let's take that a step further. If you can see from what I'm trying to explain that you were shaped by culture, whether it was your family, the culture you're a part of, or all of those things, if you can agree with me that you were shaped by culture, can you also agree that you are currently right now shaping a culture? If you were taught something, you are right now teaching somebody something. So think about what we just talked about. If you were shaped by culture and you are now shaping culture, think about your family. What are you teaching your kids about anger? What are you teaching your kids about finances? What are you teaching your kids about quality time? Are you teaching your kids that your job is more important than them? Think about the context of culture. What are you teaching your children about race and gender? Think for a minute about about, uh, community. What corporate sin are we all saying is okay because we all agree not to talk about it? Now, there's not many things on the internet that are fruitful. There's lots of things on the internet that are funny, which is why... I'm on the internet, just here for the laughs. There's not many things that are fruitful and educational. But among them, this week, I ran across a video. And, and look, in, in a, a culture like we are in today where things are very sensitive and everyone's point of view is very charged, um, there's, it, there's like good luck saying anything right or wrong. Because it feels like anything you say, it's gonna be right or wrong. Everyone's going to inject their baggage into whatever you say, and it doesn't matter if it's your opinion anymore. And, and we're in this culture of like shared beliefs and ownership, so like something that you didn't even create, you own, right? Here's a great example, like the Star Wars franchise. Like none of y'all in here were on that team of making that movie, but man, some of y'all feel some ownership. Football's a great example. None of you in here play for your sports teams, but when you talk about it, man, my team did really good. The, you don't play for them. Our culture, our sense of ownership has kind of warped us into thinking we own these things when you don't have anything to do with them. But I digress. So I was watching this video. And in the video, it was trying to explain how in our culture, this concept of sin can affect how people view their um, running their race of life, for example. all right. so think for a moment, Paul uses this example of like running the race of life. Um, So this person had a whole line of teenagers uh, up on a line, think think in your mind kind of like a football field, and they're all um, on like the one yard line. And what he says is, he says, okay, well, I'm going I'm to have you all race for this $100 bill at the end of the football field, but before we do, I'm going to set up a couple rules, okay? So all of them are here. What I want you to do is um, everybody in this line who grew up in a home with two parents take two steps forward. And then he says, okay, um, I want everybody um, who grew up with a dad in the home to take two steps forward. Take two steps forward if you never had to help your parents pay the bills. Take two steps forward um, if your parents had a retirement 401k plan. And at the end of this, you had some of those teenagers at the 50-yard line, and some of them still on the one-yard line. And then he said, go. Go. The point of that illustration is to explain to us as believers that the culture we have been placed in by the sovereignty of God has some pretty messed up perspectives on how we're supposed to run the race of life because some people, just by following God's principles, have set us up for God's blessings. But that doesn't mean that everybody who we are called to love and reconcile with is starting at the same point as you and to be blind to that whole concept makes you ineffective at sharing the gospel. You follow? Now this seems foreign to a lot of our Americans because this is not something that we think about. We don't think about the fact that we had both parents raise us as an advantage because that's our normal. But there is a responsibility within community to address this idea of corporate sin. What I mean by that is the Holy Spirit will convict us of corporate sin that we have been taught and that we are currently teaching by participating in the culture we're in. So when I say, prepare yourself for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? That means the Holy Spirit will convict you of individual sin, but also the corporate sin that exists because of things that happened before you got here, and the things you were taught, and the things that you are currently teaching now. The Holy Spirit will convict you of the fact that you are not teaching your children to hate anger and racism. You can't just assume that they'll catch that. You can't just assume in a world that loves to teach your kids all kinds of things on YouTube, that they will just catch the fact that within the context of marriage, a man and a wife is God's design and that they'll just accept it. No, they're going to be taught the complete opposite of that. They will be taught the opposite of that in lots of different areas around the world. And you have to assume that they're not just going to catch it, that you have to teach that. You have to be explicit. And when the Holy Spirit convicts you of not doing that, you better respond to it. Are you following me? Because we're going to go even, this is going to get even worse. So we can expect the conviction of individual sin. We can expect the conviction of corporate sin. Let's go even deeper. I promise you're not going to like this. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel is in captivity. Why is he in captivity? Why is he in Babylon and not in Israel? Because Israel refused to obey the word of the Lord. They served idols, they worshiped false gods, and God raised up Babylon and brought them into captivity. Daniel chapter nine, verse three. Then I turned my face to the Lord, the Lord God, seeking him in prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth. All right, Daniel's got something really serious here. He's worked up about something. What's he worked up about? I prayed to the Lord my God, And made confession saying, okay, so he's confessing, he's repenting. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, and to us belongs open shame. As this day the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Israel, and to all Israel who, who are near and who are far away in the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you. To you, excuse me, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. What is Daniel doing? Daniel is repenting his ancestors' sin and how that sin has a- affected Israel today. Where Daniel lives is because of the choices that his ancestors made. Are you following? Israel sinned, and that put Daniel in a different home than Israel. Now, this is wild. Daniel feels a sense of responsibility to this sin that he did not commit. This is not Daniel's thing. He didn't do this, and yet we see him owning the byproduct of this sin, and he repents on behalf of his people. The world Daniel lived in was shaped by Daniel's, by these former sins, and Daniel did not commit them. So, so what does that teach us for Daniel to teach us uh, about praying and repenting for sins that he did not commit, but are affecting the culture and the world he lives in? Is there any sins in our immediate history, us Americans today, that are shaping the world we live in? is there? Is there? Are there any sins that existed maybe a hundred years ago that are affecting the world we're living in today? Is there any sins in your ancestors' history, your individual ancestors' history, that are affecting the culture that we're, listening, or we're living in today? Well, the answer is yes. Yes. Ancestors sinned and affect the world that we're living in. Now, what? let, let me... Let me explain this the best way I could possibly by using a personal example. I'm gonna get real sensitive here, so I, I, I pray that you don't ever hold this against me, but I'm gonna get as real as I possibly can. So a few years ago, my grandmother uh, thought it was a really cool idea to put together my family's genealogy on just one side of my family. So she put together this huge book, and when you sit down with it, I mean, it's like this big. It's huge. It's got all kinds of stuff going back to ancestors where they came from, that kind of stuff. It's a big book, lots of information. And upon reading it, I discovered that my family owned at least one slave. Uh, maybe more, but upon reading this, that my family history, like my immediate family history, are slave owners. Now, I've never owned a slave. And that's the argument you hear a lot of people in the South use. Well, I've never owned a slave. So why am I accountable for any of that? Well, Daniel didn't commit any of sins of Israel, but he feels a sense of ownership to that. And if I'm gonna lean on something to inform me on how I should think, it's gonna be the Bible and not my own personal experiences. And I think that's what we should all do. So the reality is, This sin that my ancestors has participated in has produced part of the world that I see on the news today. And in some sense, I have some level of ownership over that, even though I didn't do that. So what are some of the things that the Holy Spirit will convict you of? Personal sins, corporate sins, and ancestral sins. So for me, if we're just talking about me, what does godly grief and repentance look like for me being a member of a family deeply entrenched in the South and owned slaves? Well, for me, the world, well, let's contrast. So what does the world think that repentance should look like? The world thinks that repentance for me should look like me making a, um, a, a fluster of Facebook posts denouncing um, racism and murder of people like Ahmaud Arbery and, and George Floyd. That's what it looks like. You should speak up. Don't be silent. You should say something. The only problem with that is your definition of say something is different than my definition of say something, because you can't convince me that Facebook is is a fruitful place of conversation. So I choose to not even engage in sharing my voice and what I'm walking in repentance-wise on Facebook and social media, which is one of the reasons why you will continue to see me be habitually quiet on issues that the world wants me to scream about, because I'm convinced that for me, not for all of you, but for me, repentance looks different than just posting a post to make my conscience feel better and let everybody know what team I'm on. What does it look like? It looks like me calling my black friends and checking in on them. It looks like teaching my church how to think in the world that we live in. It looks like teaching my children not to be racists. So that if my oldest son who wants to grow up and, and, and become a law enforcement officer is not the guy who's got his knee on the neck of a black man in the street murdering him on video, that's what it looks like for me. Because that guy learned that somewhere. We've got multiple, uh, at my current count, we've got over three law enforcement officers that attend this church. I have a responsibility as a pastor to make sure that I'm shepherding them in a way that when they come up on a scene, what they want most is to de-escalate the situation and preserve the peace and not exercise force at every opportunity. That's what it looks like for me to work through repentance and reconciliation. Now how did I get to this place? It takes a long time. It takes a lot of prayer. Figuring out what repentance looks like for me when I have a history of sin in my In my family that has contributed to the world that we live in, it looks like a lot of hours on my knees in prayer and thinking through and reading the scriptures to come up to with what I'm supposed to do, and that is where all of you are as well. Listen to me. Do not buy into the lie that the way out of this mess is to just post and share things online that will not fix the mess we're in. I'm not telling you to stop that. I'm telling you that's not the fix. It's barely a band-aid. What it looks like is finding people who are on the one yard line when you are on the 60 yard line and figuring out ways to help them bring, leverage what you have to help the world around us. I've got a young man who's dear to my life. I don't wanna embarrass him, but I'm gonna anyway. His name is Matt. I've known Matt Keith since he was probably in first grade, second grade. Right around high school, he made the decision when his family moved away to stay here in Tallahassee with his older brother and let his brother raise him so he could stay close to his family and his church. Now I'm not Matt's father. He's not my son. But in some way, I feel a responsibility to be a father to him. And when I look at that young man, I am beyond proud of what he's accomplished in his life, starting on the one yard line. So for me, that's what it looks like. Don't let anybody lie to you that the easy way out is just to share things. This is much harder than posting things on Facebook and sharing stuff. This is going to take a lifelong change of the way you think, washing your heart and your mind in the Word of God so that you think family language and not business language. The whole church is built around the idea of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, not people who are in and people who are out. So changing this is going to be a long process, and you're going to have to do what I did. You're going to have to spend a lot of time in prayer asking the Lord, what do I do? Oh God, wreck my heart with this sin the way that I see Daniel being wrecked. Now, if at this point you still haven't come around, if at this point you're still saying, I don't see it, I don't see how somebody else's sin should affect my prayer life or my walk at all. Let me give you one more verse. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I apologize for going long today, but I feel like this is important. Pastors say that all the time, right? (laughs) Sorry for going long. This is my third closing. We are going to end on this. Romans 5.12. So this is for all of us to get a frame of reference for this idea that things that happened before you showed up still affect who you are. Romans 5.12 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so spread to all men because all sinned. I submit this to you. If you're having a hard time swallowing this idea that sin that came before you affects you and you should should own it and repent of it, your whole concept of Christianity is based on the idea that this guy named Adam, who you have never met, made a choice that you now have to repent of even though you weren't the one who ate the apple. You already believe it. You are already a part of a culture system of heaven-touching earth that tells you you have to change because of something that was done to you before you ever showed up. You follow? All of us can agree that we need a Savior because of sin. Psalm 51, 5, you were born into sin. Um, every, before you even committed sin, you were born in iniquity. So personal, cultural, ancestral sin, there is human sin, and all of us are guilty of it because we were born into it. So. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, he is going to convict you of personal sin and corporate sin and ancestral sin. And the reason why he convicts you is because you have already confessed the fact that you are guilty of human sin. So when you pray like Jesus tells us, Father, forgive me of my debts as I forgive others, we're asking for forgiveness over personal and corporate and historical sin We're asking the Holy Spirit to expose how sin has shaped us individually, our family, and how it's currently shaping our culture. And we're asking how to walk in forgiveness towards others because we were born in the darkness, but we were then born again into his marvelous light. Amen? Let's close on that.